Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Curator's Choice. This is your host, Ayla Anderson, and continuing with our theme of October in West and West Virginia, today we're going to be at the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. So the asylum is known as one of the more haunted areas in America, and I'll be going into more of the spooky stuff on the next bonus episode, but this episode is going to focus on more the history of the hospital when it was a state hospital and then when it became the lunatic asylum, kind of the admissions process. We're going to have a great time talking about the art program that they had. And it originally, the design of this hospital was to be a place of help and healing for the mentally insane, which unfortunately during this era, Uh, was severely lacking. There was a lot of inhumane treatment. So we're going to kind of talk about the positive side and what the good things that came out of this asylum. So we're speaking with Bethany Cutright, who is the office manager at Allegheny. And she's going to share with us their amazing art program. Like I said, they had painting and sculpture and pottery. The one we're focusing on today was a project of mask painting where they painted the outside of the mask to display how the world saw them, the patients, and then on the inside of the mask painting how they really felt and how they saw themselves. So we're going to be talking about that area of their art therapy program. And then we're also going to be talking about some of the stonemason work of the original stonemasons, the craftsmen who started and built the asylum. And we're talking about some of the signatures that they left behind and a couple of gargoyle faces and just some unique aspects of building a hospital like this one. When we were up in Weston preparing to interview for this episode, we were camping at one of the campsites up there with our camper which we made ourselves, just throwing that out there. But we actually met our neighbors at our campsite. The woman used to be a nurse at the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. And she was kind of sharing with us some of her stories from there, and which was kind of a fun addition. But let's go ahead and hear from Bethany. All, and if you want pictures of today's episode, of course, you can go to curatorschoicepodcast.com and I have the Instagram page and the Facebook page. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. And it's a Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. That's correct. Not Insane Asylum. Not Insane Asylum. Okay. It's, and the reason that is our name is we couldn't operate as a private business under anything that it was in operation as. But given we wanted to keep it historically accurate, when the General Assembly of Virginia signed the paperwork to build the hospital, that's the name that was written on the paperwork, was the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. But because it was never opened with patients under that name, because West Virginia took over before it opened, um, we can use a historically accurate name without crossing that gray See, I was thinking that for some reason it had to do with the difference between like considered lunatic and um, insane, and I thought maybe one of them like nope. back in that day had a specific. It did change term. names, um, like it was West Virginia Hospital for the Insane, and then the Weston State Hospital, and then just Weston Hospital because even calling it a state hospital was offensive. So, really? Yes. Wow. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> that is. Uh, 
much different than than I was expecting, but that makes a lot more sense actually. Uh, so we're we're here and um, excited that we're going to be talking about the asylum. However, we have some cool things. It's not all doom and gloom and negative things about it. We have some really cool, fun stuff to share. So why don't we go ahead and just kind of start with how the insane asylum came to be, and then like what was the the process through it, and then we can flow into items. Okay. In the time the hospital was built was the era of the asylum. So these massive state hospitals were popping up all over the country, and the state of Virginia had a need for additional state hospital space. So the General Assembly um, decided to build the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum in 1858, and construction was started. Uh, the Civil War broke out and kind of put a halt to things. A halt at everything. And then the new state of West Virginia was formed and completed construction on the very first section. And then we opened to the first patients in 1864. And the first patients that were admitted, they were people who were considered some kind of mental illness. Absolutely. The entire population of this hospital throughout its time was all to treat mental illness and So it never degrees. took people with injuries or, or anything like that? No. Okay, so I mean, definitely they were specialized then. It was, it was very highly specialized hospitals. And there was a specific treatment plan that was used here? The hospital was built on the Kirkbride plan. Kirkbride. And Dr. Kirkbride believed that the building itself could be part of the cure. So they're all long and rambling wards that allowed for a lot of fresh air, a lot of sunlight to come in, uh, big grounds because having beautiful surroundings and also surroundings that provided fruitful for their life with farms being self-sustaining and keeping the patients busy, giving them jobs, providing activities, preventing an idle mind. And that was all part of the treatment of Dr. Kirkbride. And that's what our building was based on. And did he work here? He did not work at this specific location. Um, he was based out of Pennsylvania, but his ideas were broadly adopted in the me medical community of people treating mental illness. Okay. And I know that we talk, we're, we will talk a little bit more about some of the other doctors that were here and some of the processes that they did. But for the most part, like what did that care look like? We said, you know, lots of light, lots of air, but throughout their day, what was like a day in the life of someone who was admitted here? Um, a day in the life changed greatly over the course of time. Um, in the very beginning, when Dr. Kirkbride's plan was, was flourishing in our country, um, patients that were able-bodied would wake up and have a, a regular morning routine, have their meals in the dining rooms, and then if they were able, they would have a job. Some of them worked the farm, Others worked making clothing or general task about the hospital. Um, others would take part in amusing activities. There were games, um, even carriage rides on the front lawn at times. They would bring in traveling preachers to see the patients on Sundays. Um, traveling acts that would be passing through would often stop and the hospital would hire them to entertain the patients. Um, and advocates like Dorothea Dix even stopped and presented our patients with a kaleidoscope, it's noted. so. Who is Dorothea Dix? Dorothea Dix was an amazing woman who was a pioneer and an advocate for the mentally ill when there was no one doing that. Um, she was a nurse and a teacher, and you should look her up. She's a phenomenal woman and really pushed for the asylum movement. So I did look up Dorothea Dix, and Bethany is right. She 
was amazing. So Dorothea Dix, originally she was a teacher, she was a nurse, I mean a force of nature, but she's really best known for the work that she did to improve the living conditions of the mentally ill. One of her biographers even wrote of her, she is an example of the rare cases in history where a social movement of such proportions can be attributed to the work of a single individual. So I'm getting all of my information out of this book called Lunatic, The Rise and Fall of an American Asylum, and it's by Edward Gleason, and I purchased it while I was at Trans-Allegheny, and it's a great read. I'll provide the link in the show notes, but if you're interested in uh, reading more about the history of Trans-Allegheny, I highly suggest this book, and in it, he also is talking about Dorothea Dix. So Dix was born in 1802. She apparently had a really abusive father and a mentally unstable mother. So she took over a lot of the care of her, her younger family, unfortunately. But then she does get adopted when she's 13 by other family members who are a little bit uh, more well off, I should say. And they're able to provide her with a lot more support. Um, she's relatively uneducated, but that does not stop this woman. When she is 15, she opens a school for women. And basically, its purpose was just at that time, there wasn't a lot of education opportunities for women. So she, at age 15, she opened up a school, a private school in Massachusetts. And then five years later, she opened up another school like that in Boston. Because why stop at one school so just incredible. And where her fighting for the mentally ill comes into play is in 1841. She visits a jail in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And there she sees, I mean, it's already really rough conditions. You're talking about the mid 1800s. And unfortunately, all of the individuals who are considered mentally ill are in the same lockup with homicidal individuals. So they were in horrible conditions. They were they were chained naked to the to the walls and they were in these disgusting cells. They had no clothes on. They had no heating or ventilation. So it was just putrid. And that really shaped a lot of her drive for the future. She she realized how horrendous those conditions were, and it became her life's mission to make them better for people who were mentally ill. And she was also a big fan and a, a friend and colleague to Dr. Thomas Kirkbride, who was the developer of the Kirkbride plan, which the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum was crafted after. So, you know, after Dorothea sees this, this mess in the Massachusetts jail, she basically gets the community up in an uproar. She she publicly shames the Massachusetts state's legislator. She gets um, the Boston press to, to print things about it. And basically, she tells everyone how dreadful these conditions are and how they need to have more funding so that they can do a better job. And she's really successful. The state legislature does authorize funds to help improve that situation. So then following that success in Massachusetts, she kind of becomes this one-woman crusade extensively in America and in Europe and in Asia. She travels everywhere. She views how these barbaric conditions are happening worldwide. And her efforts culminated in the first state-funded hospital for the mentally ill, which was opened in Trent, New Jersey in 1848. It was a second asylum that was built following the Kirkbride plan. And her and Kirkbride... They collaborated over decades, um, working to revolutionize the treatment of the insane. So she was a powerful, wonderful woman who really made a huge difference. So let's go ahead and get back. 
Well, and that's kind of what we were talking about earlier, you know, especially early back when this was first becoming a thing. I mean, mental illness wasn't really considered as a sickness as much as it was possibly, you know, demonic possession or there was just something inherently wrong with you that couldn't be fixed. So they didn't have a place to send you. So most of them, you know, got sent to a prison or, but if they were lucky, they could be sent to a place that was this growing industry of actually trying to help people with these mental illnesses. Absolutely. And the, the creators of these hospitals were truly trying to make, make a home for people who may have never had a home in their life, give them purpose with the intentions of curing those that could be cured and also a way to shield those that couldn't from the dangers and the people of the outside world as well. Absolutely. <laughs> and also, depending on who was viewing it, which side you were viewing it from, the public also viewed it as a way of keeping them keeping patients from general society. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where you get to where the op- overpopulation occurred and it became more of a repository for the unwanted. And that's where the heartbreaking stories really come in. But even through those times, there were still people that came to work every day trying to do good, like bringing programs like art therapy that help. Even through the dark times, there were still good people. And art therapy comes into play for one of our main items that we wanted to talk about. But really quick, before we go into that, I did want to ask about the admissions process because it's a state hospital. So I'm guessing, you know, it wasn't really, how how did they pay for being here? Um, It was a state funded hospital. So every, there were private pay instances. Um, The majority of patients were brought here either by family who brought them in doctors, sometimes they came from prisons, but they would come in from all different areas of the state. Um, and in the early days, it didn't require a medical diagnosis. So your husband could bring you and say, you know, after she had this baby, she's just not been the same. She's saying these crazy things and I, I just can't deal with this. He would leave his wife here, oftentimes go home and remarry and continue raising a family without the woman he left here. And a lot of those now we have to reflect back on. And even though it's not indicated in anything we have, it was a postpartum depression. Um, So there was a good bit of that instance going on here. Was there any other instances of uh, hysteria, basically like when a woman was at that time of month? I know that that's a big thing that you read about sometimes. It is listed. And while we don't have patient records, we do have an intake book. Um, When the Jordans first bought it, people brought things and dropped off in droves so unfortunately like the archival process was non-existent at that point Um, so we're not sure where it came from but we have an admissions book not from the very first patients but in those early years and often it would just say women trouble or we have a list of reasons for admission and it's important to realize that those weren't medical diagnosis on those records those were what the people told to hospital staff when they would bring someone so he might, it might just say he got kicked in the head by a horse. Or novel reading, reading too much for fun, oh, caused concern. And so someone was brought in for that. So they actually have a record of their reasons for admission at the Lunatic Asylum from 1864 to 1889. And there is 
quite a lot on this list, so I just wanted to point out some of the ones that I found particularly interesting, but if you would like to listen at the very end of this episode, I'm going to read out all of the reasons. So if you want the full record, just wait until the end and I'll, I'll read them all then. So a couple of the ones that I found most interesting, bad company, business nerves, a carbuncle, doubt about his mother's ancestors, fighting fire, or a gunshot wound. They had someone admitted because they married their son. One was masturbation for 30 years. One was parents were cousins. Another one, seduction and disappointment. Women trouble. Salvation army. And rumor of husband murder. So unfortunately, a lot of times when these were admitted, it wasn't necessarily... A real reason, it was just the reason that was given to the person who was surrendering them over. But they do have the list and uh, listen at the very end if you want the complete list from 1864 to 1889. All right, let's get back. Later on, admissions process changed dramatically as, you know, they started having a greater understanding of things. Anything in science, we've got to be willing to take new information and adapt. Later on, even, some people were treated for alcoholism and drug addiction here, too, because there was a greater understanding of that being an illness of the brain as well. So, so you know, when people think about the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, like we talked about, you know, it's a lot of negativity, you know, the lobotomies and the electroshock therapy and, and things. But we wanted to take it in a, to show some of the good things about it as well. And you mentioned just earlier about the art program. Yes. So what was that? Um, at different times, the art, art therapy was either more, pro- more prevalent or served a different purpose. But for most of its existence, patients were given an opportunity to express themselves in ways that maybe they couldn't otherwise. So you might have a patient who can't speak, but they can paint or they can draw, um, sometimes more crude than others. But it was an, a way to open communication with patients um, and to give them something to do. You know, a patient might discover they're amazing at drawing, and then that builds their self-confidence. Also opens, you know, when they feel better, they're more apt to discuss the ways that they're feeling. And some projects had specific goals in mind with the structure or the content of the art project, but it was always meant to be a means of positivity for the patient's life. And there were all different kinds of mediums. You mentioned painting, drawing, but you guys also have a kiln here that was one of the the original kiln that was part of the program. So they could do pottery, they could do other kind of textiles. Um, It was really kind of whatever, whatever, whatever struck their fancy. Absolutely. Resources were made available. And throughout time, there were some absolutely amazing art directors who really wanted to provide an opportunity. Maybe you couldn't reach a person through paint or clay. Maybe fabric is where they're moving toward. Maybe that's a way to create a positive interaction. And they could actually sell their items that they created, right? A lot of patients would sell what they made to staff or to family members. And that, in fact, that's something that's still up until COVID. The new hospital allows for an art show once a year for those patients to sell their art and make a little money while continuing the program there. And the new hospital is referring to the one that basically replaced this one when this one was no longer running. Yes, the William Sharp Hospital, the psychiatric hospital run by the state now. But it's a much smaller facility than this year. 
And you know, you have a, an entire walkway that we just went through and it has a ton of different examples of some of the really cool art that has been created. But we wanted to specifically talk about there are some masks in a display case. We have a collection of masks and they're paper mache masks. And on the front, it looks like looking into a group maybe you're taking on tour. Varied faces, different color skins, different color hair. And on the inside, it would be much different. The purpose of that art project was they were guided to paint the outside how the world sees them. And then on the inside, interpret how they feel on the inside. It's like what they're actually hiding underneath. Exactly. Um, so that was a good exercise. And to look at them is fascinating because you look at a beautiful face and then to flip it over and see some pain or torment that someone was going through. But it's it's a start to releasing that in their, in their progress. The ones that you have, when, when were these made? Um, the masks that we have were from the mid-1980s, um, closer to the end of the hospital's existence. Do you know of any of the, I mean, just by chance, do you know of any of the stories behind any of the masks of the individual patients? I do not specifically, That's though okay. I was told when they were donated that she could recall each of the people. Really? So. Who donated them? I'm not allowed to say her name. It was an anonymous donor. Okay, well, so good on her. Yes. <laughs> so uh, we kind of have the inside. We've talked a little bit about the inside of the patients and the insides of the mask, the insides of the building. But the next item we want to talk about is a fun little quirk on the outside of the building that you kind of have to train your eye to see. Uh, yes, our massive hand-cut sandstone building has eight tiny faces that were left by the German, Irish, and Scottish stonemasons when they constructed the building. Each of them are different. They all have a very personal appearance. And we have speculation as to the purpose they served, but they're a nice touch to this massive facility. And they're kind of anonymous faces to kind of represent some of the, unfortunately, anonymous patients that came through. Absolutely. And kind of going along with the, the stonemason theme and, and everything that we have behind it, you have the first part of the hospital that was actually built, which actually does house four of those gargoyles. Yes. gargoyles and that was the first one that was laid yes when they when construction began it was before the Civil War and they started with the farthest south in the entire construction so it's a single story section all made of hand cut blue sandstone quarried from nearby Mount Clare which is 17 miles about away? 17 miles north of here um, where there was already an existing quarry then the war broke out Construction halted, and when the new state of West Virginia took control of the property, the stonemasons they brought in said, well, there's perfectly good stone much closer. So the remainder of the building, with the exception of that first section and some of the foundation, was all quarried locally from the West Fork River out front. And you were saying how they would build a section and then fill it chock full with patients and then they would be like, we need some more space. Absolutely. Build another small space and then fill that space. And it, so It took about 20 years to complete the entirety of the main building um, that is just about a quarter of a mile long. And it's cool when you're outside, you can actually see the differences in some of the stone where you can tell like the foundation was laid probably at a little bit different time than what was built up on top of it because of the changes. But another really cool thing that I never thought about was you could tell the stonemasons who made each block. Yes. They left a signature on the blocks. They each had their own special markings because they wanted to make sure they got paid at the end of the day. 
And so they got paid. So you could you can see the markings. I'll take a picture and put it on the website. But you can see these little dash marks on the edges of a lot of the stones. And the varying length and distance between was the signature of a particular mason. And they got paid per stone? Um, there's different accounts. In some documents we have here, it was more based on their days. Um, but from superintendent's notes, it appears that they had quotas that they needed to make happen each day. That makes sense. So you actually have some of the documents. I do. And it's a, it's a ledger of work that was completed? Um, these are just the payroll records from the office of the superintendent. So it lists um, two stonemasons, the specific months that we have here, lists two sto stonemasons, um, as well as carpenters and other industry men who were working on the hospital to make it happen. And you actually found the death certificates of two of the Masons, and they died in this area? They did. Both of the gentlemen passed away in Lewis County. And through looking at the archives and their death certificates, we could determine that Mr. Wright was born in Scotland, and Mr. May was born in Germany. And they ended up here. And they found their way to West Virginia. And that was kind of the case. I mean, this when originally this hospital was built, it was, I mean, Weston today isn't huge by any means, but back then it was kind of a, a, a secluded area to build the hospital. There wasn't a big town around. Absolutely. We, the property sat just off the Staunton to Parkersburg Turnpike, which was a major channel of traffic. But other than that, it was fairly isolated. But having that road and the railroad pass right through here made it the perfect place to still supply goods for construction or otherwise, and also later on to get patients to the hospital. I had a question earlier that you answered, but the town didn't become a town because of the asylum. It kind of has a more broad history. And then of course you have the people who worked here and the families who lived here because one of their family members was in the hospital. The town was small and in development as the county seat when Lewis County became its own county, but it remained small. What really caused Weston as a town to flourish was later on when the glass industry came to Weston um, and housed a really rich history of industry there. And then on the other side of it was the state hospital, which also provided jobs. So eventually it did become quite a busy hub while still keeping that small town atmosphere. Well, we probably should have talked about this at the beginning of the episode. I was just too excited to get into your items. But how did this become a museum after it kind of closed down? What was the story of it closing down? What happened in between and then until now? You know, nationwide, there was a deinstitutionalization movement. So these massive hospitals were closed down in favor of smaller homes and smaller psychiatric facilities. So this sat empty and owned by the state from 1994 until August of 2007, when they finally decided to auction it off. You know, it was a liability and it was a massive piece of land that they were doing nothing with. And it was falling apart. And it was subject to weather. Um, the roof had some areas that needed repair. So they auctioned it off on the courthouse steps and a asbestos abatement contractor out of Morgantown purchased it. So it's privately owned and was purchased with a dream to save the amazing architecture. Uh, Mr. Jordan had always had an appreciation for hand-cut stone and always wanted a castle. And he actually was involved in the demolition of the second state hospital in West Virginia in Spencer. 
And when he was there, he saw it was also built on the Kirkbride plan, but he saw how beautiful the building was and kind of became in love with the idea. So as soon as this came up for auction, he decided he wanted to call his family. So his children help him run it. And we're actually a small family business with a mission to preserve history through tourism and educating others about the history of mental illness. I mean, obviously you do a great job and this is a very, very popular place that has a lot to it. And you guys do all kinds of tours and um, you also have a lot of outbuildings that were built. And then, you know, some, you said some were taken down. What are the different outbuildings? Do you guys have anything to do with those? Mr. Jordan owns the facility campus in its entirety. Um, he has just about 300 acres. And within that, we also have the old tuberculosis building, which is where we house our seasonal haunted attraction. So in the fall, people can come and go through a live attraction for the spooky side of things. Other buildings include the medical center that was kind of the hospital for the hospital. So if a patient needed x-rays or to have their tonsils taken out, they would have gone to the medical center. The geriatrics and women's auxiliary buildings were built to house additional bed space for the growing population. Um, the forensic unit served as the home for the criminally insane. So if someone was ordered you know, to serve their time in a state facility due to being unable to stand trial, they would be brought to our forensics unit. So that's also back there. When people died here, because some people would end up spending their entire lives here, what would happen to them after they died? Um, it depends on the year. The hospital has three cemeteries on the farm. Most families, if they had the means or the money, would bring their loved ones home to be buried at home. Others didn't, either didn't have family or didn't have the monetary means to have their loved ones shipped back were buried on our hill. Um, it's not a big fancy cemetery. It doesn't really have stones to mark them. Others, in the case of two women, were sold. Uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of the Philippine Museum. I just heard of it when we were looking for okay. places to come here. So Mr. Hamrick was a phenomenal taxidermist and he had a secret blend that he wanted to experiment on human cadavers. So he did purchase two cadavers from this hospital. So I did look it up and it is a really interesting and tragic tale. So Graham Hamrick, you know, like Bethany was saying, he was basically trying to create the perfect embalming fluid. And he, he looked to the ancient Egyptians and how they had created their mummies. And he set he, he took it upon himself to recreate that. So in 1888, he purchased two female cadavers from the asylum. They were apparently two poor souls that had perished and had not been claimed by anyone. And they were just sold to this scientist in, in the town of Philippi, 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 I'm going to say Philippi, West Virginia. And so he did his, his work on them. He was successful. His embalming potion worked really well and the two women were then embalmed and he kept them as kind of a, a triumph of what his science could do so his mummification process attracted a lot of attention even the smithsonian institute they offered to exhibit these two female specimens that he had they were people 
They agreed that they would do this only if he gave them their formula, which he refused to do. Apparently, it was his very, very important secret. And he he kept it until he died. Apparently, before his death, he had created enough embalming fluid to embalm himself. And he had requested that his family members embalm him after his death. Uh, but they did not do so. So he is buried at Mary's Chapel Cemetery. But then the life of these these women just continues and, and is unfortunate. So they tour Europe for a few years with the P.T. Barnum exhibits and they end up getting lost. Um, they're found. They were, they were stashed in a barn for a while and then they were stored underneath the bed of a local citizen in the town. And in apparently 1985, um, the town was flooded, 35 feet of flood water, and it really damaged and waterlogged these poor women. And their mummies were then laid out on the front lawn of the post office to dry out. And apparently they had another flood that happened in 1994, and then they were again covered with water, and then they started to... They had fungus and, and corruption on their bodies is what it says. And so there was an individual who created some kind of mixture that cleaned off their bodies and, and got rid of all of the, the moisture and all of the fungus that was growing and all the decay. So now these poor women are kind of a sideshow attraction at a museum in Philippi. And it's a really tragic story, but it was something that I kind of wanted to to share with you guys. I just think that it's it's kind of one of those pieces that helps you to remember that these actually were people. Yeah, I don't know. So really tragic, strange story. They're still on display now. Um, so it's just an interesting and terrible thing that, that, that happened to these two nameless women who are basically now just a quick and easy attraction. But that aside, I did look up his patent, Graham Hamrick. I looked up his patent at the U.S. Patent Office. It was filed in 1892. And I can share the actual document um, in the notes as well. But I did want to read some of it off to you. So he has a picture that he drew of um, of a body in a coffin and kind of like the, the different taps and the different things that he needed for the embalming process. But even though his embalming secrets were so secret while he was alive, I was able to access them now because the patent office, everything is um, public, public at the patent office. So it starts with, to all whom it may concern, be it known that I, Graham Hamrick, a citizen of the United States residing in Philippi in the county of Barber in the state of West Virginia, have invented certain new and useful improvements in the methods of preserving corpses. And I do declare the following to be a full, clear, and exact description of the invention, such as will enable others skilled in the art to which it appears to make and use the same reference being had to accompanying drawing forming part of the specification. My present invention relates to the class of process of methods of embalming in which sulfurous acid gas is employed. It is the object of my invention to provide a more simple and economical method which can be readily practiced by anyone without a special skill as it involves no delicate operations requiring anatomical knowledge and which is in results in preserving the body for a great length of time in a natural condition is remarkably effective. 
which I feel like is the exact opposite of what he was saying in life because he refused to tell anyone his embalming thing. But anyway, that's in his patent. And later on, it says a solution is made consisting of water, saltpeter, and the absorbable fumes arising from the combustion of sublimed sulfur in the following manner. And then he continues on to describe the process. So I'm sure that you didn't know today that you were going to learn about a patent for the economical and efficient embalming of human corpses. But there you go. You learn something new every day. All right, let's get back. I'm also curious about the restoration efforts here because I saw some pictures and I mean, it looked like it was insanely dilapidated. I shouldn't say insanely. That's kind of in poor taste. (laughs) But it was was very dilapidated. It's been an ongoing project. Um, I came on to the asylum team in 2009. So 2008 was their first season open for tours and active restoration. But as we sell tours, we take that money and put it into working area by area and saving as much as we can and bringing back a visual experience to where they can immerse themselves to what it was like. Uh, We have one fully restored ward to what patient living quarters would have been in the 1890s. So year by year, we hope to expand that and to continue so that it can be here as an educational resource for years to come. Which is why it would be great to come and purchase some tours because you're directly putting money into preservation of historic places. So just saying. If people do come, what are some of the other things that you can see and do here? We have a variety of historic tours, uh, from a very brief introduction to the history of our hospital to all-day, in-depth, long tours. Uh, We have walk-in tours six days a week through the summer months and into the fall, as well as we do, for those that are interested in the possibilities of paranormal, we do have nighttime tours that can be purchased on our website as well. So I think it would be a great injustice if I didn't just try to talk a little bit about some of the paranormal side here. I know that it's not necessarily the most historic, but it's, I mean, to me, it's kind of fun. So what is, obviously it's a hot spot for a lot of people for paranormal activity because of what did happen here. What can you tell us about that? Well, because I like history, I also am always intrigued by the paranormal. And I think if, If there's a possibility, where better than a place where thousands and thousands of people came and went? Um, And in my time here, I've had things happen that I couldn't explain. Can can you tell us? Well, okay, so not too far from here, in this room where we're sitting, just on the other side of the main hall, is the room where our breaker boxes are. And this was probably 2010, so much smaller operation, and it was just our tour manager, Sue, and I here, getting ready to open for the day, and the lights weren't on. So I walked to the breaker. I said, well, maybe it just needs flipped. So I flipped the breakers and said to myself, because I talked to myself a lot, I wonder if that worked. And directly behind me, nope. So I turn around and I look. I'm no Miss Sue, she's not there. So I come back to this room right here where we, our ticket window, where she's standing. And I'm like, did it fix it? And she goes, no, it didn't work. But I said, okay, I guess they were right. So no one else in the building. I mean, to me, that sounds almost kind of helpful, though, at that point. It was. (laughs) They weren't trying to scare you. (laughs) And I've never felt threatened. Um, Definitely alarmed or surprised, but I've never felt threatened. And I come into it with, if there's anyone here, 
I'm gonna treat them with respect. So if I'm by myself, I might say, hi guys, just passing through, just in case. Well, this has been super wonderful. I really appreciate it. And I think my listeners are gonna be super stoked to learn a little bit more about this place and see some of the positive sides instead of just the scary, scary paranormal stuff. Well, I hope, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And it's always nice because we're still learning every day as the research continues. So I hope you can come back sometime. A hundred percent, we will. Okay, so I'm just going to list off in alphabetical order, of course, all of the reasons for admission between 1864 and 1889 that were recorded at the asylum. Amenorrhea, asthma, bad company, bad habits and political excitement, bad whiskey, bite of rattlesnake, bloody flux, brain fever, business nerves, carbonic acid gas, carbuncle, cerebral softening, cold, congestion of brain, constitutional, death of sons in war, decoyed into the army, deranged masturbation, desertion by husband, diphtheria, disappointed affection, disappointed love, disappointment, dissipation of nerves, disillusion habits, dog bite, domestic affliction, domestic trouble, doubt about his mother's ancestors, dropsy, Effusion on the brain, egotism, epileptic fits, excessive sexual abuse, excitement as officer, explosion of a shell nearby, exposure in hereditary, exposure in quackery, exposure in army, fall from horse, false confinement, feebleness of intellect, fell from a horse in war, female disease, fever and loss of lawsuit, fever and nerved, Fever and jealousy, fighting fire, fits and desertion of husband, gastritis, gathering in the head, greediness, grief, gunshot wound, hard study, hereditary predisposition, hysteria, ill treatment by husband, imaginary female trouble, immoral life, imprisonment, indigestion, intemperance, intemperance and business trouble, interference, jealousy and religion, kick of horse, kicked in the head by a horse, laziness, liver and social disease, loss of arm, marriage of son, masturbation and syphilis, masturbation for 30 years, medicine to prevent conception, wow, that one's, menstrual deranged, mental excitement, milk fever, moral sanity, novel reading, nymphomania, opium habit, overaction of the mind, Overheat, overstudy of religion, overtaxing mental powers, parents were cousins, pecuniary losses, periodical fits, tobacco and masturbation, political excitement, politics, pure peril, pure peril, pure peril, hmm. religious enthusiasm, religious excitement, remorse, rumor of husband murder, salvation army, Scarlatina, seduction, seduction and disappointment, self-abuse, severe labor, sexual abuse and stimulants, sexual derangement, shooting of daughter, smallpox, snuff eating for two years, softening of the brain, spinal irritation, sunstroke, superstition, suppressed masturbation, suppression of menses, 
the war, time of life, trouble, uterine derangement, venereal excesses, vicious vices early in life, women, and women trouble. So there you have it.